Hello everyone and welcome to the Ranking of the Stars, a podcast in which I, Jack D'Lo Bobolik, and my lovely, luscious, loop-de-loop wife, <laughs> Hi, I'm Emmeline D'Lo Bobolik. Watch in chronological order every single movie that has won the Oscar for Best Picture and rank them according to however we feel at the time. Mm-hmm. Today's movie? Today is Cavalcade. Cavalcade. Do you want to start with the poster? Yes. All right. So just to describe the poster a little bit, we see the mother, the two, uh, who's the, the main female protagonist, and her two sons. Um, the closest thing this movie has to a main character overall, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, the colors of the poster are kind of divided. The lower right end of the, the poster is blue. It says, Picture of the Generation. Picture of the Generation. You'd call that blue? I'd call that gray. And really? It's, it's taken up damn near half the poster. I think this poster is indicative of the film overall because this poster is trying to be artsy, but it's mostly just fartsy, which... <laughs> I think is true of, of the entire film. It's yeah, the arrogance, the arrogance to think that you only oh we only need half the poster. We can just make the rest of it gray. Mm. I disagree, Cavalcade. You have an this entire thing has an unearned confidence. Well, to me it looks like light blue, but um, and then the rest, the top of the poster has. The, we'll get to it in the in the synopsis. It has the titular cavalcade. Yeah, titular cavalcade, and where we see people on uh, horses just going down a hill. Recurring theme throughout the film. Yes. Horses are very very important. Why? Yes. Because they are. Yes. For no other reason than they just simply are important, and yeah. that's about it. Thumbs down on this poster. Too pretentious. Too full itself. Yeah. Half of it being gray. No. No. I understand and I think it will become clear you know, through the synopsis why we have just the, the mother and her two sons. But it's not representative at all, really, of the, of the movie. I think it, it would have been... Um, it would have been better if we had something more about the war or about the family or the, the other characters as well. If we had like vignettes of the different family yeah. components. Anything besides just blank space. It looks yeah. almost unfinished. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Thumbs down. Two thumbs down. <laughs> Worse? No. I mean, probably not the worst. Grand Hotel. Poster. Yeah, because Grand Hotel was just all the pictures of people's faces. Yeah, and this is, said absolutely nothing about the movie. Yeah, this is marginally better than that, but yeah. only marginally. Only marginally. All right, let's move on to characters and actors. Characters and actors. So for the protagonist, the male and female protagonist, uh, to me, we have, although male protagonist, not quite. Yeah, it's it's He's not very her. present. No. It's mostly her. So we have... Uh, Diana Winyard, who plays Jane Marriott, and Clive Brooke, who plays Robert Marriott. They are the married couple that we meet within the first few seconds of the of the movie. 
their children are played by uh, different actors because we uh, meet them as infants and then we see them growing up. Yes, this entire movie takes place over so, the course of what, like 30 years? Uh, yeah, 33 years. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we have, so there are two sons. We have Edward Marriott, who is played by uh, John Warburton as an infant, and then uh, Jake Henderson Jr. as an adult. And then uh, Joey Marriott, who is played by Frank Lawton as, uh, as a child, and then Douglas Scott when he grows up. And then the other uh, important characters uh, are Ellen Bridges, um, the Marriott's maid, who's played by Una O'Connor. Una O'Connor. This lady, should we talk about it now? How this lady looks like a witch? She <laughs> does look like, a, like witch. a witch. She does look and sound like a she witch. Has the, it's very uncanny. Yeah, the very stereotypical high-pitched, you know, witchy voice. <laughs> yes. That kind of thing. Which and, was way, made her character way more comedic than it needed to be. Yeah. Also, her mouth is alarmingly small. Her lips are very, very tiny. Very, very, very tiny. And I know you probably have never had the experience of kissing a woman whose mouth is way too small. But I I have... I can't say that I have. And to this day, I wake up in cold sweats. (laughs) It's not fun. (laughs) I don't like it. This woman has a tiny little mosquito mouth and it scares me. Well, you never have to do it again because you have me. Yes. All right. It ain't natural. (laughs) Her husband... Alfred Bridges is played by Herbert Munden, and uh, their daughter Fanny Bridges is played by Bonita Grenville as a child, and Ursula Jeans as an adult. And this whole thing is set in London. Isn't Fanny Mm -hmm. a bad word over there? Did they name their daughter Vagina? Yes, but also there's... Fanny is, is... or Fanny in French. That's a very that was a very common name when I was a kid. All right. Oh, so it... granted, this is like a hundred years before I was even born, but it was standard practice to name your daughter vagina in those days. <laughs> well, you also have like the fanny pack, right? Those like little things that you can wear around your waist. Yes. Those like travel. I don't belts like where this is going. I don't know. <laughs> I don't like this. I'm getting spooked. Anyway, and then one more person I'm going to uh, to mention because she is a recurring uh, character. I don't necessarily know why she just seems to come in uh, come in randomly, but she comes very uh, very She's often. She's the only friend that Jane has. Yes, uh, her name. The character is named Margaret Harris, and she's played by Irene Brown. I liked Margaret. She wasn't as like stiff as all the other yeah. upper crust people she seems yeah. she seems like the only one of them who actually knows how to have a good time yeah she says she's a, a essentially like really a, a good supporting character and a supporting person throughout the movie yep i like it some facts some uh, about the movie uh it was directed by uh frank lloyd the screenplay was based on a 1931 play of, uh, with the same title, written by Noel Coward. That must be why there's so many scenes in that upstairs room in their house. 
because when it was a play, you know, they can't have that many different locations. So. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, it was distributed by Fox Film Corporation. The original uh, running time was 112 minutes. The budget was um, a little over a million dollars at the time. And it made quite a significant amount at the box office, both um, uh, domestically and uh, internationally. Because domestically it made a little over a million, but internationally it made uh, three and a half million. They always make up the, the budget overseas. Yeah. Like we said, it spans for over 30 years from New Year's Eve 1899 to New Year's Day 1933. And then it premiered in New York on January 5th, 1933. My birthday. Your birthday. Um, and was not released throughout the country until April 15th, 1933. And the pronunciation of the word cavalcade. I was going to make it and make my way to it <laughs> in the fun facts. So we had this conversation off mic uh, even before watching the movie you, because I said cavalcade. You were incensed over the pronunciation <laughs> of this. Because cavalcade is a French word and, you know, English borrows French words sometimes and doesn't necessarily change the pronunciation. We say montage, not montage. Montage. <laughs> sabotage, you've, not sabotage. You've had enough of this omelette du fromage yeah. in the <laughs> au contraire mon frere. Yes. You're putting your foot down. You're drawing a line I'm in the sand. putting you, my foot down. It should be cavalcade. You will die on this hill. But it is cavalcade. Just some fun facts about the origin of the word. Uh, of the word, it comes. It was first a Latin word, cabalus, for horses. Then uh, came the verb cavalcare in Italian, which is to ride or to go horseback riding. And then the word cavalcata in Italian again, to which is the exact translation of cavalcade. And then in sixteen in the sixteenth century, French said, "Hold on, cavalcade," and that was it. Planted their flag. Planted the uh, planted our flag, and then you guys took it from us. Had enough of this jackassery. Took it from us and changed the the pronunciation. Um, it is one of the first movies to use swear words. Such as damn and hell. Whoa, we're really earning that explicit tag this week. <laughs> yes. Um, I apologize, audience. I'm sorry. <laughs> Control yourself, please. <laughs> and then uh, one thing that uh, we'll also talk about during this synopsis that I wanted to mention before we start is that it has a beautiful soundtrack to me uh with a lot of songs that people would recognize and that we read that that we could recognize uh, which to me like made me connect with the movie as a modern uh audience member Lots because of very common public domain stuff yeah because like i knew those songs um i knew i knew those songs and i knew what the songs were used for and I could identify uh, the emotions that I was supposed to feel 
in that moment, even when the movie wasn't super interesting or super explicit. Uh, and it's the first, it's, it is uh, the first time that this happens to me on our movie and podcast uh, journey. Best soundtrack so far, what you're saying? Yeah, best soundtrack so far. It's different from the from recognizing, you know, in Broadway Melody, I, I recognize that I was meant for, uh, I was meant for you, you were meant for me, but the song was used in such a creepy way in the movie that I didn't necessarily and he have any feelings to it. Also, was it. part of a lie because the character said he's yes. the one who came up with it. Yeah, he didn't. I'd like to. Uh perform my original composition called <clears throat> Uptown Funk. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, in Broadway Melody, like I was in free, it was used in a, in a creepy way and the feelings of it or the situation rather were not uh, genuine uh, and authentic, but the soundtrack in this movie was really well chosen. Mm, followed by another little number called <clears throat> Yellow Submarine. <laughs> and just to give you a taste of the, um, of the songs that are used, in the movie, and that can be recognized, we had God Save the Queen. Yep. Starts. Um, that's what we start with. That's what we start with. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce this one, but I'm going to go with Auld Lang Seen. Yes, the only all acquaintance be frank. It's that mm -hmm. one. They sing it a lot. By uh, Robert Bunz. Uh, we have The Emperor Waltz uh, by Johann Strauss II, as well as The Blue Danube. Blue Danube. This is a, a two movies in a row the that use the Blue Danube. Yep. And then a song that you didn't know, but that I recognized. Um, it's a long way to Tipperary. Yep. And then one more song that appears in a specific scene that I'm not going to tell you about, but I, I, I want you to remember, audience, that there I'm going to come back to this song because I can't tell you more right now because I, it would give away too much bit, away. Too there, much. there is a, a, a hilarious twist in this movie, so yes. we'll put a pin in that for now. Yes. Dear God. And with that, I hand you the mic to start the synopsis. All right. The plot, such as it is. We open with God Save the Queen, ironically playing over an image of the king. Which king? Uh, George, Henry, one of those guys. Yeah. Uh, then we get people on horses in the background while the credits scroll by as if they were on a cylinder. Just one of the many puzzling, bizarre choices in this movie. It's like they took the credits and printed them out and like slapped them on a big rolling pin and then just filmed like the rolling pin going by because they curve yes, yes, they curve yes. upward and away from the screen it's weird and in the background it's very dimly lit it looks like a medieval scene of people on horses just mm -hmm. walking by bizarre uh, then the uh opening text because we always have to have text in these old movies this is the story of a home and a family History seen through the eyes of a wife and mother whose love tempers both fortune and disaster. As 1899 ends, England is at war with the Boers in South Africa, but the tide of battle is against her. It is an emergency. New Year's Eve, our London family, sheltered through two generations of Victorian prosperity, await the headlong cavalcade <gasps> title drop, of the 20th century. The um, 
wife and mother part of that for some reason not not when uh we watched the movie but just hearing you say it again reminded me of um you're having uh, Vietnam flashbacks to, to Cimarron. <laughs> to Cimarron, yeah. Wife and mother. Stainless Wife. woman. <laughs> no, no, no more Yancey. <laughs> no Go more. away. <laughs> no more. No more Yancey. Uh, Jane and Robert Marriott return home from an upscale New Year's Eve party and are greeted at the door by their butler, Alfred Bridges. Very fancy upscale clothing throughout mm-hmm. this entire movie. People are at minimum, especially the women, always wearing like 30 pounds and they have all this fur and these fancy hats and a corset and jewelry. And what are those like fuzzy things that they stick their hands in that are just there to cover their hands? Yeah, you see it in in Mary Poppins and in Titanic. Yeah, they, uh, it's just a, a round, like a slender piece of fur that you put your hands in when it's cold. Like, it's December. It's New Year's Eve. Yeah, so it's, it's going to be cold outside. Just to hide your hands in. Yeah. They have a lot of those. They're always huge and covered in fur and flowers. Mm-hmm. Very fancy. Yep. Also, my grandmother had one of those. I remember playing with it as a kid. <laughs> Don't know why. Maybe we're secretly a British royalty. <laughs> They head upstairs in a joyful mood and uh, greet their maid, Ellen Bridges, who is arranging flowers that are a gift from her and Alfred to Jane and Robert. They're on good terms with each other. They're friends. Yeah. Uh, Which is something that I appreciated in this movie, that there was no... um, Even though we have, you know, Jane and and Robert who are, like, higher society, and uh, I appreciate that we don't really see uh, them, like, being condescending being like authority uh, authoritative with their uh servants no nope. it was something that was really uh, that was very nice yeah about very it. much part of the family yeah ellen leaves uh, she coughs while she's leaving i thought there was going to mm-hmm. be some like plot line about her sickness but she just coughs on her way out and <laughs> she never coughs ever again so nope just another one of the one of many many bizarre details details but... in this movie this movie is stuffed to the gills with just Things that just, why, why is that there and serve no p- purpose? Uh, Ellen leaves and Jane and Robert talk about how perfect their lives are and how much they love each other. It's a, what I appreciated. The The main couple of Robert and Jane are rock steady throughout this entire thing. There's they never are. any conflict yeah. between them. They always are just very supportive and loving of each other. I appreciated that. Uh, down in the kitchen, Alfred is preparing a bowl of punch and trading quips with a fellow servant named Cookie. They call her Cookie in the uh, credits for the movie. She's just referred to as Cook. <laughs> and she's got on this big, it looks like a, a, a croissant, a big black croissant hat with like feathers on it. Because yeah. she, she's going out to party and that's what they're bantering about. He's like, oh, be careful. How You know how you get after you've had, what's it called, like a... a snifter or something yeah, there's a lot I of believe that's what he said. weird british slang in this movie also he makes the punch with hot water which i did not understand <laughs> but okay uh what did i say stuff to the gills with the bizarre <laughs> details you know hot water punch uh cookie leaves and ellen enters uh telling alfred that she feels like it's the end of everything because he's been drafted into the war you married me for better or for worse says alfred not this kind of worse, says Ellen. <laughs> uh, 
Back upstairs, Jane is having similar feelings about Robert going to war, and Robert consoles her by saying that the war will probably be over soon anyway. Might even uh, end before he even gets there. Uh, Alfred and Ellen enter with the punch and are invited to stay and drink. Jane hears one of the children calling and goes out to find their youngest son, Joey, standing at the top of the stairs. Mm -hmm. And he's wearing this, like, they're, the kids' pajamas are these long, like, evening gowns. Mm -hmm. Which my grandmother also made one of those for me. Yeah, I had one when I was a kid, too. Furthering my suspicion that we are secretly British royalty. <laughs> these are super common, uh... Again, super common in France. Like, I had one when I was a kid. My parents still have one to these days. Just, like, like a, an, um, a, a robe that you just put over yourself. Like, a, mostly in the winter when it's... You put over your pajamas when you... Uh, yeah, when you get out of bed because it's cold. Yeah, evening gown. Yeah. Not the style in the deep south in the 90s. Mm. But I had one. <laughs> she carries him back to bed... Uh, and calls him a naughty child, and he calls her an old lady. But Robert decides that the boys should be allowed to witness the dawn of a new century, so they all return to the punch bowl and cheer as the clock strikes midnight. The kids get milk, though. They don't get... They don't get the punch. <laughs> you don't get the hot water punch until you're 18. <laughs> you gotta earn it. Uh, 16 when you're a European. Outside, there's a huge celebration, and we see Cookie with her big uh, black croissant feather hat mixed up in the crowd. Mm -hmm. There you go. It's your, you get your big crowd scene. That's why it won Best Picture. 100 people at least. I think that's also where we see the, the Lipton tea truck. Yes, 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 yes. Yep, Lipton tea. I was like, oh, Lipton tea. Been around for quite a while. Uh, the next scene begins with the boys complaining that they don't get to see their father's ship uh, set sail for war because Joey has a cold, mm -hmm. I think is the excuse. Yes. Uh, Jane's friend Margaret then arrives with her daughter Edith and uh, offers to watch the boys while Jane sees Robert off. Robert enters in his military uniform, and both boys salute him. He makes them promise to be good while he's gone, and they ask if he's going to cut up the bad guys into little pieces with his sword. Damn right I am, says Robert. <laughs> they, he gives the names of all like the generals and the people they're fighting, and yeah. uh, they make him promise to, to cut up the bad guys into little pieces with his sword. And down in the kitchen, the serving women are crying over Alfred leaving, and Ellen's elderly mother makes everything worse by talking about her relatives that have died in previous wars. <laughs> yeah, they're like crying as they prepare the food and be like, it's okay, it won't be that long until he comes back. And her mother, this old crone who's just sitting in the corner, if he does come back. <laughs> At all. <laughs> uh, she's great. It's a looming specter. Mm. Uh, always ready and willing to crush everyone's hopes and dreams. Alfred enters in his uniform and tries to lighten the mood by singing to his baby daughter, Fanny. His singing fades into music played by a band as we jump to the docks where the ship is. A huge crowd has gathered to see the soldiers off, full of people cheering and waving flags as ranks of soldiers march up to the ship. Another huge crowd scene. Yeah. Yeah. Got a full band, got uh, people marching in ranks up to the ship. Everybody going nuts. Throw... You got people on the ship. Yeah, there are already people on the ship. They've got, like, their arms locked into each other, and they're, mm -hmm. like, moving back and forth singing. while they sing. Yeah, a joyous uh, celebration. Uh, we get a brief scene of the interior of a building on the dock with four people we've never seen before and will never see again. 
Uh, two men and two women. One of the men outlines the route the soldiers will take when they land, and one of the women exclaims that it's such a wonderful sight, uh, while the second woman, who's older, uh, wonders how many of the departing soldiers will make it back alive. This is also the scene they have. It's clearly just uh, the window they're looking out of. There's just a screen behind the window, and they're projecting mm-hmm. film of, yeah. of the docks onto it. We then see Alfred boarding the ship after giving Ellen a last quick smooch at the foot of the boarding ramp. She's like, she's going as far as she possibly can with him, like holding onto his arm and almost going up the ramp with him. She's in clear distress, yeah. does not want him to go. Uh, Jane and Robert are also saying their goodbyes uh, off to the side in a more private location. And Robert tells Jane to kiss him and then turn away and keep talking to him so she won't actually see him leave. Which she does, and it, it was one of those moments where... And there are a few moments in the movie where she does that again, where it's almost breaking the fourth wall because she's looking, at, not in this specific scene, but in other scenes, she's looking directly at the camera. Yep. Which was, it was kind of not disconcerting, but it was just... Uh, it made me uncomfortable for a second. Just staring right down the barrel. Yeah. They smooch, and she turns and begins to talk about how she's glad she didn't bring the boys down to see him leave because Joey has a cold and gets very excitable. Uh, She tells him to take care of himself and that she felt him leave when she was talking about the boys, at which point she breaks and turns uh, back around to see the ship. I like this scene a lot. You do? I think uh, for as much of a mess as this movie is, there are some uh, very good... uh, emotional scenes between her and her husband that are very raw raw and uh, and authentic yes also i feel like you can see you can you get glimpses of what their relationship is like and it's one of those moments where like where you can really see the how supportive they are of each other the fact that he didn't want her to like actually see him leave yeah. really because he knows that she's going to cry and she's and she's it's gonna make that it's going to make it that much more difficult for him to leave as well yeah it's a very real and understandable emotion yeah. to be forcibly separated from someone you love yeah. and, and how distressing that is i mean i can definitely identify in those uh in that scene like from when you and i um lived on each <laughs> you know on each coast of the country yep. and we had to say goodbye at airports yep uh, she pushes her way to the front of the crowd and she finds ellen and they hold each other as they wave goodbye to their husbands robert is just standing waving mm-hmm. and uh, alfred has found his way into one of those uh, chains of people holding mm-hmm. arms and swaying back and forth and singing Next scene opens with a group of people standing around a message board that has a South African casualty list on it, Mm -hmm. just out in the town square. Uh, Jane is there with Margaret, and so far Robert and Alfred have not appeared on the list. As they walk away, a woman screams and faints. Uh, I'm guessing that she uh, found a name she was looking for. Back home, the boys and Edith are playing with toy soldiers, and an argument breaks out because Edith doesn't want to be the boars, uh, with the boys responding that someone has to, and it's all girls are good for. (laughs) I like Edward, the older of the two boys, is presiding over this 
uh, play session and he's yeah. getting on to them both for very logistical concerns like you're wasting ammunition <laughs> and your <laughs> your troops aren't uh, uh you know lined up properly <laughs> this is all this is all improper and out of order this fight escalates and joe just picks up and these are like heavy metal toys he just picks one of them up and chucks it at yeah. edith uh jane breaks up the fight and tells the children to just go away somewhere it's just shoes them out of the room uh, she then complains to Margaret about the music that they can hear being played outside. I guess it's a war tune or something. I believe so. It, it's if if not a, a war tune, it's definitely like a it has a sad tone. Uh, yeah, complains about the music outside, so Margaret goes out onto the balcony and throws some money to the man playing to make him go away. She just goes out and she excuse me, go away. Not <laughs> <laughs> a very yeah, snooty, uh, but just very direct way. <laughs> Excuse me, sir, go away. A very <laughs> and, British way about yeah. her. And uh, throws a coin at him, which yeah. he catches and then leaves. Uh, Jane continues to stress out over the war, and Margaret tells her that uh, they'll be relieved any day now. They've been saying that for months, replies Jane. Uh, while they sit out there dying by inches, starvation, disease, and horror. I can't bear to think of it, but I can't stop thinking about it. Uh, Ellen then enters with some tea and also tries to reassure Jane by telling her that no news is good news. I'm not going to lie, at that point in the movie, I was a little scared that this was going to be like this for the entirety the whole of thing the movie her just hand wringing and she is so i understand i understand it and i i don't understand it again because i never experienced war like this uh i don't know how i would be if you were shipped to war but um especially in a time where you can't get any yeah real-time well, updates exactly. this is back in the 30s where uh, not even the 30s this is like 1900 yeah you're right earlier than that but, but it, yeah they have to rely on the daily newspaper for any yes. updates which they show uh, the maid ellen uh going out to buy a newspaper and then jane calling down for the balcony like her any anything new nope and then no. just the idea that then you have to wait a whole another 24 hours yeah. but the way that the actress plays uh, the Jane in those in those moments when her husband is away. It's just, it's sometimes to me overly dramatic. Yes, and that she... I was I was really afraid that it was going to be like this for the for the whole movie. Yeah, she she hams it up a little too much, and it it undercuts the 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 tension and the drama of it. Yeah, she's yeah very melodramatic. Ellen tells her that no good news is good news. Jane answers by sobbing. Uh, Margaret's had enough of the waterworks and tells Jane that tonight they're going out to dinner and the theater to take her mind off things. Uh, Jane doesn't want to, but Margaret isn't taking no for an answer and tells her that the, the men are being gallant, so they must be gallant too. And she puts on her white gloves. Margaret leaves. And uh, Jane notices that the music is back, which causes her to have a full-on meltdown and start yelling for it to be played louder. <laughs> this is what you were talking about with her uh, her over-the-top acting. She goes out onto the balcony and she goes, play it louder, louder! And then she 
goes back inside and she starts kicking the toy soldiers that the kids were playing with. Yeah. And while continuing to play, it's louder. <laughs> Just, okay. Uh, cut to the theater where we see a performance by girls in military ish looking outfits mm -hmm. uh, singing about supporting the troops. Uh, their song is that they are the girls from the CIV, which is the. It's like Citizen of London something volunteers. Which it should be CLIV, but it's just CIV. Uh, the camera pans over to the balcony where Margaret is enjoying the performance while Jane radiates complete misery. She's not even looking at the stage. She's just yeah. staring off into space and uh, looking like she'd rather be anywhere but there. Also, going to the theater to get your mind off the war and then the both uh, performances we see at the theater are specifically about the war. Yes. Not a great plan. Uh, the song ends and a second performance starts that has something to do with an officer and a princess. It's like a very uh, Swedish-looking uh, maid runs out. It's like someone you'd expect to be wearing like wooden shoes. Mm -hmm. And she's followed by uh, a soldier and she, who talks about an officer who's pursuing a princess. I don't... And then the officer comes out, and then the entire stage floods with people, and they all start singing. Yeah. And it, it, it's very indistinct what they're saying, so I don't... I couldn't understand a word of what they were singing about. So. Yep. Uh, another one of the numerous, bizarre, unrelated uh, things in this movie. The performance is halted before it can even finish, though, uh, so an announcement can be made. The soldiers are being relieved and coming home. The theater erupts in deafening cheers, mm -hmm. and it sticks around for a while on these cheers, too. Okay. We get a full minute of just the crowd going bonkers and throwing their uh, hats in the air and everybody being overjoyed. Uh, we then cut to the welcome home parade for the soldiers, and they march in columns down the street to the sound of cheering and music. We see Robert at the front with the officers and Alfred in the main column with his fellow grunts. Uh, then we're back in the Marriott's kitchen where a new member of the servants, Annie, is holding a piece of bread near the stove uh, in order to toast it. She just got a long poker, mm -hmm. fire poker, and it's just the bread speared on the end of it. She's holding it near the oven. This is how we toast things in the 30s. This is not the 30s. <laughs> it's the this 30s. Is the, it's the 1900s. Like, it's, it's the beginning of 1900. It's the 30s. Ellen's mother, always ready with a horror story, says that she knew a woman who caught fire while she was toasting bread like that, and all that was left of the woman was her brooch. <laughs> Thanks, Grandma. She always has the wrong thing to say at the wrong moment. She always has a story about how someone died doing whatever it is yes. you're currently doing. And she saw it. Annie then poses a question that the greatest minds of our generation still debate <laughs> to this very day. Where is Africa? <laughs> and she repeats it at least 10 to 15 she times. She will not let this go. And she says it in this very peculiar way while she's holding a knife mm -hmm. and standing. But it's almost sinister because she's just holding this knife, standing behind one of the other cooks and going, Where is Africa? <laughs> Okay, nobody answers her either. Well, they tell her that she's dumb. 
for uh, asking this, and that is Annie's character, that she is very airheaded, and she also laughs anytime there's a story about someone getting injured. Yes. It happens when the grandma talks about the woman dying in fire, and, and Annie giggles about it. The, yeah. There's something off about Annie. She's not all there. And then this, yeah, this, where is Africa? While holding a knife, standing very close behind. It's just, I love a good non sequitur. They really tickle my funny bone, and this holding a knife and asking where Africa <laughs> is 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 primo non sequitur, which <laughs> this movie has tons of, and I very very deeply appreciate. But also, like I was really waiting for somebody to uh, give her an actual answer, and it seems like nobody does. Yeah, nobody, they, nobody knows where Africa is. It does exactly. seem like they're trying to obfuscate the fact that they don't know where it is either because yeah. they're like, oh, well, it's on the map, you know, it, it, yeah, it's I've south. Seen it, I've and, seen it on the map, but I don't know where it is exactly. Yes, they ask her, well, haven't you seen it on a map? And she goes, yeah, but where is it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. I would wear a, I would wear a t-shirt with, with Annie holding a knife and the words, where is Africa on it. Ellen and Alfred then return from the parade, and after greeting everyone, Alfred tells Ellen's mother that he bought a pub from someone he met while in Africa, and that she can come live with them there now. Uh, they all sit down for a meal, and Annie asks Al Alfred where Africa is. She is not letting this go. Uh, he doesn't know either, but it's bloody hot when you get there, he says. Uh, upstairs, the boys are jumping all over Robert. Uh, super excited about him being back and asking for war stories. He informs them that while he was there, he killed 44 lions, a zebra, two ostriches, and a kaliali bird. Mm. Or a kakiali bird. Excuse me. Uh, he then pushes the bird... Uh, the bird? He then pushes the boys uh, out of the room so he can smooch with Jane. Back down in the kitchen, everyone hears a crier in the street yelling about an extra special message from the palace. Uh, Annie runs out and brings the paper inside, and Alfred reads that the queen doesn't have long to live. While she's out getting the paper, Alfred is always like, what's going on? What's all this about? And everybody else mm -hmm. knows about it than him, but they don't want to say. Yeah. And uh, Ellen even says that she doesn't care. And then uh, Cookie's like, oh, how can you not care? This concerns the whole country. To which Ellen says, all, all I care about is that Alfred's back from the war. Yeah, the queen doesn't have long to live. Uh, Annie remarks that she's never seen the queen before, uh, to which Alfred replies, and the camera uh, does a close-up on his face while he's saying this. This is a very somber and serious thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Alfred replies, I have, driving along Birdcage Walk once, years ago. England won't half seem funny without the queen. Mm -hmm. Alfred, <laughs> Alfred has a lot of very british uh sentence structure well he's also he's a butler so yeah. and that at the time that was like a a real profession you used to people used to go to school to be uh, to be uh, a butler so yes. that, that's something that's very proper and really well considered in in england yes a proper career to to serve a noble lord yeah uh, cut to Jane and the boys in the upstairs room, waiting for the Queen's funeral procession to go by. 
the boys are very excited because Robert is part of the uh, procession, uh, while Jane just feels listless and sad. She also um, gives a piece of cake to Joey in order to, to calm him down, which mm-hmm. he takes out uh, to Edward and Edith on the balcony, and they have a little tussle over who gets the biggest piece of cake, which causes yeah. them to drop a piece of cake off the balcony, and <laughs> it falls onto some uh, fancy lady's big feathery hat. Yeah. And then that scene again, the, you know, God Save the Queen is played, and I'm gonna... I don't know why I felt so strongly about this, but... I almost had a, a moment of sadness, really, when we were uh, when watching the the scene, probably because they are witnessing, you know, the they're seeing the procession with the the queen and she's going to her funeral, and I feel like because we had our well not our queen but our the our time the modern queen, queen the modern queen uh, elizabeth the second died like not even a year ago uh no almost a year ago oh my god i think she i don't remember exactly when she died i know but... she's so young too only 145 <laughs> <laughs> 96 <laughs> i think um she was alive forever yeah but it, it I felt like I understood what they were feeling, even though I was not in England when uh, when she died and did not see her procession, funeral procession, uh, firsthand. But I feel I get that feeling of having had somebody, um, you know, at the head of your country for so long, and then all of a sudden they're a symbol. They represent your monarchy. They represent your country. They your values and all that. And then all of a sudden that person dies. And yeah, I just, it gave me a sense that I understood what these people were supposed to feel in that moment. Yeah, a nation in mourning. Yeah. I felt nothing, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm more along the lines of, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have royalty. <laughs> but. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that we should have royalty. I'm just saying, like, I understand what that feels like to, to see your. Yeah, queen it die. is treated as a very somber occasion except the the kids are bouncing off the walls because it's an exciting event but all the adults are are very very uh depressed by it well and they're waiting to see their uh, their dad also who's in yeah. the procession yeah the kids are just like oh white horses coffin dead lady this is awesome <laughs> and the adults are all oh the end of an era and they're all dressed in black, and it sh- it never shows the actual procession. It mm-hmm. just the camera is focused on them on the balcony watching the procession, mm-hmm. and uh, the servants have one balcony to themselves, and then the the upper crust, you know, actual family has their own balcony, and they all watch it and are sad together. They are they are united in their grief. the The class divides uh, melt away in the face of this national tragedy. Uh. The loss almost feels personal, Jane says. Uh, Alfred enters and says the procession is almost there, and all the servants crowd onto one balcony, and Jane, the boys, Margaret, and Edith uh, stand on the other. Uh, Jane has to keep Joey from bouncing around in excitement, and Ellen cries on Alfred's shoulder while the other servants watch somberly. Uh, then we have our first uh, time skip. Uh, we see the horses from the opening credits again. That's that. Anytime there's a time skip, that is our uh, our indicator that it has happened. The the horses marching by in the background, 
uh, and we're at a high society party. Robert and Jane enter, and Jane asks Robert if he's having fun. Uh, Robert says no, next scene. <laughs> I don't. This, in a movie stuffed full of bizarre things that make no sense, this is one of the ones that makes the least sense because there was so much effort put into this scene that lasts less than a minute and nothing of any import whatsoever happens in it because yeah. they're at this huge party in this grand fancy venue with all the more than a hundred people and each one of those people is dressed in like full military uniform or these enormous gaudy dresses and just so much time and effort for this this nothing scene it's it's baffling they're also they're greeting somebody they're being uh, as people come in they're being introduced by a butler by name yeah they have a, to, a crier uh, they're being yeah, announced to i don't know who it's a woman who's like uh, really uh elegantly dressed and all that. we have no idea who she is yeah no information uh nothing from the scene gets paid off later it, it's less than a minute why why i don't I, I turned to you when we were watching it and said, mm -hmm. what was the point of that scene? So bizarre. Uh, it's 1908 now, and uh, we see the horses again. I think, yeah, I think this is bookended by the horses. Mm -hmm. Horses, fancy scene with... Horses again. Uh, horses again. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, we zoom in to Alfred Bridges Bar, which, according to its sign, is licensed to sell wines, spirits, beer, tobacco and to be consumed on or off the premises. Alfred is telling war stories to customers at the bar. It's very small space. It almost seems like you just walk in and it's just like a front counter. Almost. Yeah. It doesn't seem like there's any sort of like chairs or booths or anything like that. It's just like a little uh, hole in the wall place. It reminded me if some of you watch uh, Peaky Blinders, it reminded me of one of the bars that the uh, that the Peaky Blinders are, are going to. It's like a really, really tight space where they conduct their like uh, illicit business. Yeah, it's just like you walk up to the counter and they hand you a beer and then you leave because there's no room to hang out. Uh, telling more stories, customers at the bar, but he's called back uh, into the back room by Ellen so uh, before he can finish his stories. So she can get onto him for not paying the rent on time and drinking up all their profits. You used to be respectable, she says. <laughs> <laughs> to which Alfred responds, Don't you make me have to speak to you severe. <laughs> uh, and leaves to go drinking. Or maybe to pay the rent. He gets waylaid because it shows him like walking down the street and he runs into some pals and goes, Have a drink, Alfred. Oh, yeah. no, I can't. Maybe just one, and then he goes just inside. Just one. Yeah, yeah, this is this is Alfred's heel turn, which was unexpected because he was perfectly fine and uh, a good dude before this, and then we have this time skip, and he's just turned into a drunken asshole. Well, do you remember what he uh, tells her? Also, he says that yeah, he's a free man now. He's his own boss. Yes. So he can't can... get on to a man for being his own boss. Yep. Yep. Then be a better one, she says. She sounds like the how they would portray old women in Monty Python sketches. 
<laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. I didn't know we had a king. <laughs> I didn't vote for him. <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> sounds exactly like that. Your your British and Irish accents here are coming out so well. Uh, thank you. Years of practice. And I'm also uh, secretly British royalty, <laughs> as we're learning. Uh, Alfred runs into Fanny as he's leaving, uh, who's on her way home from school, because she's carrying her school books. Uh, he asks for a kiss, and she turns her head away in protest. She doesn't say anything, she just, like, turns her head away and looks yeah. down. And he, oh, too good for your old man, eh? And then he forces her to give him a kiss anyway. And she, Smooch on the lips. Yep, not happy about it. Nope. Later that same day, Jane, uh, gr grown-up Edward, uh, Annie, and Annie's husband, George, have come to visit... And Fanny dances for them in a fancy white dress. Everyone is impressed and agrees that fancy, uh, fancy <laughs> that Fanny is a born dancer. Uh, Edward talks about being at Oxford now, and uh, Annie's husband George says it's a very antique place, which is apparently some sort of social faux pas. Because after he says it, Jane like blinks and has this oh look on her face and kind of looks down. I don't. I, I don't get it. I don't... Well, Oxford is supposed to be, like, la crème de la crème in, uh, in England. Like, it's the, like, you know, equivalent of what we have here as, like, Ivy League. Like, Oxford is very comparable to, like, Harvard or Princeton. Sure, I get that, but I don't... Antique isn't uh, an insult. Well, it can be. I see. Yeah, I, it could mean, like outdated and like old-fashioned yeah, he didn't that wasn't his tone though he was just a very jovial because they were asking him if he's ever been there he's like oh uh, yeah i've been there it's a very antique place and and then there's just this awkward quiet i don't i don't get it uh, i don't get a lot of things in this movie i don't know to me if you said that something is uh, antique uh, i would take it as a as a with a negative connotation yeah the evening winds down, and as everyone is getting ready to leave and saying their goodbyes, uh, Alfred returns, surprised to see all the guests, because Ellen had kept him in the dark about the visit so he wouldn't be there to embarrass them. Uh, she told uh, Jane and everyone that he had injured himself and that he was upstairs mm -hmm. resting. Yeah. He injured himself the cycle, and they're, the guests are like poking holes in the story. Like, oh, I didn't know he had a cycle, yeah. and things like that covering for his absence because she doesn't she doesn't want the the drunken lout to be there embarrassing them and we also thought for a second that annie's husband was her cousin but yes. in rewatching the scene it turns out that george is ellen's cousin ellen's cousin yes. so i guess yeah annie and her are related through marriage and that's mm -hmm. probably how she got the the servant job in the first place yeah uh alfred immediately proves ellen right uh and welcomes jane to their hovel and uh, calls her haughty when she doesn't respond. And J Jane does not say anything to him. He starts in on this tirade, and, and Jane just turns to Ellen and walks over, and I'm so sorry about all this. Which, uh, Ellen should be the one apologizing. Uh, Jane tells Ellen she's sorry and leaves, and Alfred uh, goes on about how they're all snobs, uh, grabbing a doll that Jane had gifted to Fanny and smashing it on the ground. For no good apparent reason. Yeah, he just comes in and just is a, a flaming asshole for no reason. Oh, uh, oh, the high. Uh, he what does he say? He says, uh, "Oh, can't have me around when the quality's here, huh?" Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and like you said, he's definitely proving her right. Yeah, and like George tries to to calm things down and just get him to go upstairs, and they wrestle for a bit. Uh, Fanny runs out the door. Uh, George unsuccessfully tries to wrestle Alfred up the stairs. Uh, Outside, there's some sort of celebration going on. Which we don't know about. Yeah, no idea what it is. Uh, And Fanny is dancing in the street with some circus people. They look like circus people. They've got gaudy outfits on, but like everything else in this movie, there's no explanation and it's just a non sequitur and and here it is, deal with it. Yep. Uh, Circus people dancing in the streets, why not? Alfred approaches and tries to drag her back into the pub, uh, but is stopped by the circus people who drag him off to the side uh, until he punches them and breaks away. Uh, I like this because the music is so loud from the celebration that you can't hear anything mm-hmm. they're saying to each other. It's all just pantomime and him gesturing and like trying to, to drag Fanny and them uh, pushing him away. Yep. Uh, he backs up into the street and puts up his fists ready for a fight. Uh, but before the fight can start, a carriage pulled by two white horses comes barreling down the road and plows into Alfred going full speed. Uh, the circus people uh, go and get Ellen from the pub and she runs out kneels by Alfred's body laying in the mud and starts screaming and sobbing hysterically. Uh, We cut back to Fanny, who is still dancing happily in the street, and slowly fade to black. Yeah, Yeah, just out of nowhere. It's a big carriage, too. Big horses going at, frankly, unsafe speeds. (laughs) (laughs) And just, yeah, no attempt to stop at all. It's not like they slam the brakes and are too late. They just full speed just plow over him. And I don't, just logistically and very realistically, there were tons of people in the street. Somehow, Alfred is the only one who gets yeah, he, run over. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Unsafe speed. There's a huge crowd. You were, you're asking for trouble. Yeah. And he, he's just dead as as soon as she gets there. He doesn't have any uh, final words or anything like that. He's yeah. just dead lying in the mud. And there's no there's no blood or anything. It's just him laying down death from non-specific traumatic injuries. Uh, When we come back, it's now 1909, and we know this because we're looking at a sand sculpture in progress that's labeled Famous People 1909. Uh, These famous people are uh, Edward VII, and all their faces are carved into the sand. Mm -hmm. Uh, Edward VII, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, Emmeline Pankhurst, and Lauder. I don't know who Lauder is. Do I don't know who Lauder is, but Emmeline Pankhurst, I was so I was so happy to see that name because Emmeline with two M's for her, one M for me. Uh, Emmeline Pankhurst was uh, the first, because they're like the first suffragette. Yep. She was the, the first like activist for feminine rights. And I'm guessing Lauder was some kind of artist because he's got the traditional artist beret on his mm-hmm. head. And that one, Lauder is still being worked on by the sculptor as the camera pans over the faces. Uh, We're at the beach, and a crowd is gathered around a small makeshift stage walking a man sing a jaunty song about he loves to be by the seaside. Because there's a lot of pretty ladies. These, like, very uh, barbershop quartet uh, looking because he's got the, the, like, red and white striped jacket and a a very flat-topped straw hat 
and white pants and he's doing a song and dance on this little uh makeshift stage a lot of a lot of musical performances in this movie yeah just little random songs and uh yeah stuff the song is indeed entitled i do like to be beside the seaside yeah that's repeated throughout it Oh, I do like to be by the seaside. It's very jaunty. And he he's like tap dancing and he does the thing where he like jumps up and like clicks his heels. Uh, after the song concludes, uh, an older man in the same outfit uh, gets up to announce the winners of this week's song and dance competition, which is Little Miss Fanny Bridges, of course. And she wins a teddy bear. Gets yeah. up on stage. We've been told also uh, in the... Scene before when they're in a house that she's going to go to dance school to dance academy. Yes, dance academy. They're they're uh, all in. They're putting all their chips on Fanny. Uh, upon hearing this, another girl in the crowd around Annie's age, which is like ten or eleven at this point, yeah, begins to scream in pure white hot rage and is carried away. She doesn't say anything. It's just Fanny is announced to the winner and she just starts. Screaming screaming that yeah that was loud that like, like, almost made me jump top of her lungs and she's uh a man who i'm assuming is her father just gets up just <laughs> throws her over the shoulder and just walks out with her while she just continues to scream uh so much that her you can hear her continuing to scream in the next scene as they're walking down the boardwalk Yep. which made me laugh because it's just another one of those things like wh- why why have this she's way too old to be having a fit like this and she's upset she didn't get the teddy bear <laughs> just screaming inarticulate screaming and to have it continue on into the next scene while other characters are talking and you just have this child screaming at the top of her lungs in the background you have no idea she hasn't been recognized for her dancing talents <laughs> I can't even go that high. Uh, we move to the sidewalk above the beach and see Edward and Edith walking arm in arm behind Jane. They're like leaning on each other. And you could just hear the kid continuing to scream in the background. Uh, they uh, stop to talk to Margaret and Joey. And Jane says they're all going down to the beach to meet Robert. But Edward declines to go so that he and Edith... Edith, excuse me, can go to a concert, and he acts like this is something risky to go down on the beach because he's like, "Oh, I don't have a strong constitution." It's a very like upper crust, uh, British thing. Like, oh, the sand. I guess I don't. This is another thing. Yeah, I, I, I do don't not get, understand. I don't get why going down on the beach is a risk or you need a strong constitution, but according to Edward, you do. And Joey makes fun of him a little bit for it. Like, oh, go get your bucket and pail. <laughs> they're, they're so... They're aggressively British. <laughs> I think that's the right way to put it. After Edward and Edith leave, uh, Margaret turns to Jane and Joey and asks, Are those two children getting romantic by any chance? <laughs> uh, Joey says they've gone completely dippy for each other and it's pathetic. Uh, but Jane and Margaret approve of the pairing. Yeah, Margaret is like, oh, but would you mind, Jane? You, oh, not at all, my dear. There's, they're so prim and proper and everything. Uh, we go back to Edward and Edith to find that they didn't actually go to a concert, uh, but just use it as an excuse to get some alone time. They're just sitting on a log down on the beach, risking their lives <gasps> being around that much sand. 
Uh, they sit on a log, and Edith confesses that one of her vices is sitting in boats with cynical young men and staring out to sea. <laughs> I like Edith. She's got a little bit of that, like, snarkiness that the Baron had. Yeah. Yeah. She's probably my favorite character in this movie. A little bit of the, the snarkiness of the uh, the Baron, but also uh, the uh, Femchin from mm. uh, Grand Hotel. Yeah, she, she's quick-witted and uh, sarcastic. They see a freighter passing by on the ocean, and Edith says she'd love to be on a ship like that someday. Mm -hmm. Would you, asked Edward, together, on the most lovely honeymoon in the world? They smooch, and then they see a, pl a plane flying overhead. Uh, it's Blériot. Yeah. I don't know who this is, uh, but Edward says his name. Flying the Channel according to Edward, and it's... <laughs> this is, like, the level of, of special effect I was expecting from Wings, because this is just a little plane on a string. Yeah. You can almost hear somebody making the noise going... As, it just, <laughs> as they just... It, yeah, you only see it for a few seconds, but very low-budget model. Uh, we then get a shot looking down on a, a crowd cheering the plane, uh, and then are visited by the background horses yet again. Yet again. Another time skip. April 14th, 1912. We see a large ship gliding across a moonlit sea and move in for a closer look to find Edward and Edith on their honeymoon. She got her wish. She's, on, she's on the freighter. Hooray! They're standing by the railing of the ship looking out to sea and Edith says, wouldn't it be awful if a magician came to us and said, unless you count accurately every single fish in the Atlantic, you shall die tonight. What, like, what an awkward question. Mm. Like, what kind of question is this? Uh, I'm, I'm fine with it. Sure, whatever. <laughs> Evil magicians, hate them. Yep. Uh, Edward agrees that random curse magicians are the worst. <laughs> And if that happened, they'd die tonight. How much would you mind dying? asks Edith. A good deal, I expect, replies Edward. <laughs> uh, Edith says she wouldn't mind because they'll never be happier than they are right now. Uh, she then asks him if he thought when they were children that they'd get married someday, to which he replies, of course I didn't. You were a horrible child. <laughs> He does. Yep. He does say you were a horrible. Child. I like I like Edward in, in this scene a lot too because he's he's given just as good as he gets and they're yeah. they're, they're a good pairing. They got they got that good banter that the Baron and the, the secretary had. Yeah. Uh, she jokingly says that he was a horrible child too, as was Joey. He's passing uh, gallantly through his chorus girl phase now, isn't he? Says Edith. Uh, gallantly but not quickly is the reply from Edward. Uh, Edith then points out that Edward had his own chorus girl phase, and he whispers into her ear, Light of my life, shut, shut up. up. <laughs> <laughs> she then comments that uh, he'd be upset if she had her own affair before they were married, uh, and he comes back with a slightly worried, uh, You didn't, though, right? Uh, hundreds, is the reply. <laughs> Uh, they both chuckle, but then she admits the, that she wishes she had, so she'd know some tricks to keep him interested when they grow when he grows tired of her, uh, which she feels is inevitable. Aww. Yeah. Just a few years, and the guilt wears off the gingerbread, <laughs> she says. Uh, How long do you give us, he asks, and she replies that she doesn't care. This is our moment. 
complete and heavenly. I'm not afraid of him anything. This is our own forever. They share a passionate kiss and walk away from the railing, allowing the camera to see a life preserver that was <laughs> hidden bef- uh, behind them uh, until that very moment. And this life preserver has the name of the ship on it, at which point it is revealed to the audience that they, they are, are on, on the, the goddamn Titanic! Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> I oh, knew! Of course they're on the Titanic! I knew as soon as I saw the date... Because right, <laughs> right, the the scene right before that is her wishing that she could be on the ship. Then we cut to that time skip, and then that that just the date. I saw the date. I was like, oh gosh, it's, no! It is the only time this movie is that specific with the date. Yes, I lost my shit <laughs> when this happened. It's so dumb. And it's so yeah, dumb, and it's the way extra. the way they choose to reveal it by having this this long, you know, intimate uh, conversation about death and how uh, this is the happiest they'll ever be, and uh, oh, the future and all this, and they walk away, and the camera just zooms in on this yeah. life preserver that says Titanic. And the song I was talking about earlier is uh, "Nearer My God to Thee." Which is allegedly the last song that was played on the actual Titanic when it sang. I've heard this myth too, that they played it as the ship went down. And it is also played by the violin quartet in the movie Titanic, the like 1997 movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, which we'll have to watch at some point, many, many weeks from now, because it also won Best Picture. Yep, we got to the Titanic uh, much quicker than I was expecting. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But so yeah, so the the, the as we see the li- the life preserver and the name Titan Titanic, uh, we hear that uh, the song. I laughed so hard. It's just this movie tries so hard to be artsy and dramatic, and most of the time it just fumbles and falls completely on its face, and just <laughs> comes off as just goofy and dumb. Oh, piss. Off, they're on the Titanic. <laughs> oh, it, the, it's just like, oh, they thought they had the whole lives ahead of them, but they were on the sinking ship. <laughs> she even, the first thing out of her mouth is like, oh, doesn't it feel feel a bit cold to you? Yeah. Oh, because there's an iceberg? Is that what you mean, movie? It's so ham-fisted. <laughs> and just the whole lead up to that, the fact that they're just rent, they're on their and they were talking about dying. I like the conversation a lot. I am always, I'm always willing to have a good let's stare to the abyss conversation. Oh, sure, it's just the combination of like, she says like this is the happiest we'll ever be, it, and somehow like you're still talking about death and dying with your husband it, right now. It's it is a very young person's view of of getting older in the future. I guess. Yeah, I liked it a lot. I liked their banter. I <laughs> the cherry on top of them being on the Titanic and the movie choosing to reveal it in the the oh they think they're being clever. Yeah, they're so proud of themselves. Yeah. I have 
nothing against the, the banter. I think the, the conversation, the writing for that scene is absolutely great. It's probably the best writing in the movie. Yeah. And it's just like, when you and I go on our honeymoon, I'm not going to talk about this. Maybe a little bit. Maybe. <laughs> you also get some cool shots of the ocean at night and the moon on the waves. It was neat. It's just that, man, man, <laughs> I'm going to remember that forever. <laughs> That stupid slow zoom in on the life preserver that says Titanic. Oh, you did not earn that movie. <sighs> All right. August 4th, 1914. Uh, shot of a newspaper headline. Can World War be avoided? Jane and Margaret uh, enter the upstairs room and complain about how miserable it is to travel abroad. No servants, no food in the house. Dreadful, they yeah. say. They come back into the upstairs room and everything is like covered in... Every single piece of furniture is covered in a dust cloth. Yep. Uh, as they begin to remove the dust covers from the furniture, Joey enters and tells them that Robert is in the cellar looking for a drink. And Margaret thinks that's a great idea. Uh, Jane leaves to find some biscuits, and Joey lights a cigarette for Margaret and tells her how excited he is for the war. I thought that this was going to be the beginning of some sort of romance between them. I thought so, too. And I was all for it. I am always <laughs> down for a good May-December romance. Yeah, because, I mean, Ed, this would have also been an unexpected twist. Yep. Hell yeah, Joey. Go for it. Uh, that's not how it goes at all, though. No. Wishful thinking on my part. Uh, Robert enters with some drinks. Uh, Margaret leaves, uh, allowing Joey and his father to talk about the coming war. Uh, Robert thinks he'll be drafted again and isn't looking forward to it, uh, but isn't too upset because he expects the war to be over in about three months' time. Uh, Germany doesn't have the money for it, yeah, he jokes says. Jokes on you. Uh, Joey wants to be part of the fun, too, and wishes Edward hadn't drowned so they could have a fun war adventure together. This movie does a great job. Uh, British people have that uh, reputation for being, for pushing their emotions so far down and just mm -hmm. completely ignoring them. And this movie does an excellent job of conveying that because they just, they're so stiff and awkward anytime they even approach something remotely emotional. And when Joey's talking about uh, Edward drowning, he doesn't look at his dad at all. Oh, yeah. He's just like, looks away and he goes by very muffled like i do i do so wish edward hadn't dr drowned <laughs> it's just they treat emotions like you treat someone in a like sunglasses uh booth at a mall like mm. somebody trying to you know hand out pamphlets or something where you're just like don't make eye contact just pick up your pace a little bit and you just mm, mm, don't no, nope nope don't look at it and anytime there's an interaction between him and his dad, it's so stiff. We're like, uh, he's talking about going off to war, and Robert doesn't want him to, obviously, because he knows what it's really like. Sure. And uh, Robert's uh, method of trying to dissuade him is just uh, standing behind him, putting a stiff hand on his shoulder, and being like, "Well, try and think think of your mother, son, and you you you've all we've got left." It's yeah. very, very muted. An interaction later in the movie that yeah feels a, a little bit muted but is also very I don't want loving is not the the word but it has a little bit more like heartfelt emotion in it. Yeah. 
Margaret and Jane return just in time to hear a cry from outside announcing that the war has officially been declared. Uh, Jane clutches her chest and sits down, as she says she feels very hot. Yeah. Joey hands her a drink and says they should all go out and celebrate, but Jane hands the drink back and tells him to drink as the Germans are doing tonight to victory and defeat and stupid tragic sorrow, but she won't do it. She won't! She yells and, and runs out it's of the room. It's another very dramatic yeah. explosion. <laughs> yes, that's her way of engaging with emotion is to, to bottle it up until it explodes and yeah. to have a freak out and start kicking things or, or yelling and, yeah, just have a meltdown. Well, it's like she knows what that means also. Like, on the first war at the beginning of the movie, her, uh, her kids were uh, too young, so only her husband went. But, like, now she has a husband and a son who are both, Yep. Still in age and, to go to war. And one son she's already lost. So it's, yeah. it's completely understandable and I sympathize. And can, and they're trying to convey these people that are caught up in the rush of history. Yeah. right? They're caught up in the flow of things and they're powerless to stop it. And it just rolls over them and destroys their lives. So yeah. I sympathize and I get what they're going for. It's just... It, it's just it's a little over the top. The hammy acting undercuts it. We then move on to a scene at a fancy uh, cabaret club where a pretty young lady sings about all the soldiers she's currently sleeping with. Uh, it's like a weird... They've got a, the band up on a pedestal, but mm -hmm. the people who are actually singing are just standing down on the floor where there's a bunch yeah. of people just eating at tables. Yeah. So it's a dinner and a show kind of place mm -hmm. with the singers just like amongst the people that are eating. Yeah. I wrote down part of the lyrics of her song. Uh, she talks She talks about every soldier she sleeps with on a different day of the week, and then she gets to Saturday, and she says, But on, on Saturday I'm willing, if you'll only take the shilling, to make a man out of any one of you. And she points around to the different men in the, in the crowd as she says it. Yeah. What I was... I remember I turned to you, I was like, Is she talking about... All the soldiers that she's sleeping with? Yep. <laughs> I was not expecting that. That's that's the motivation. That's how you get them. Uh, camera then moves to a table on the side of the room where Joey sits in uniform with some fellow soldier buddies. He's off to France tomorrow, and he couldn't be happier, though he's sitting there with... One of the guys he's sitting with has already been in the war mm -hmm. and is trying. He's not happy about it all. He's very drunk and he's like, it's bad, you don't understand, but Joey's just having none of it. He, yeah. What? He's going off on an adventure. Fun adventure. Will not hear anything otherwise. Uh, the song ends and a new act starts. A slim blonde woman dancing with a big feather fan. Is a huge fan. Yeah. Uh, one of the soldiers mentions that this uh, new woman's name is Fanny Bridges, and Joey is shocked. Uh, he gets up and finds her dressing room and waits for her there. Uh, she comes in, but before Joey can say anything, she starts to undress, and Joey freezes like a deer in headlights. He tries to sneak out, but Fanny notices, and uh, Joey manages to salvage the situation by revealing that they knew each other as children. This is gratuitous for us, but Joey, Joey immediately looks horrified when she starts taking her clothes off. Like, this was not in his intention at all, and he just immediately understands that he is in way deeper shit than he ever intended <laughs> yeah. to be in. And you just see him freeze in panic. Like, he doesn't, he's just, he doesn't know what to do. Like, should he say something? Should he yeah. just try and leave? He, 
he looks like a little kid who's just panicking. What's this, uh, like, almost in, in very intimate scene from what we're seeing and he's still a young man and he's a young soldier now and I don't know maybe he's never been with a woman yet uh, but he's already gone through his chorus girl phase according to him but yeah Joey is very childish about the whole thing yeah. Joey always has this enormous grin plastered on his face the entire movie and he's always super excited yeah. about everything that's happening like oh it's an adventure I can't wait for the war to start and <laughs> Nothing gets Joey down. He's yeah, kind of goofy and just doesn't doesn't get it. He's not mature, and he takes way too long to introduce himself after she catches him because yeah. he tries to make her play this stupid guessing game of like, oh, d my name is Joey. Don't you know anyone named Joey? Like, try... and the first thing he says is like, don't be afraid. Or like, yeah. okay, uh, if helping. somebody is just waiting for me in my dressing room, I'm sure gonna be afraid yeah and don't don't take this roundabout way when you've been caught in her dressing room while she's undressing christ's sake joey just say that you're joey from her childhood it's so protracted and awkward he goes about it the worst way possible but he wins her over uh, we then get a, a shot of a, a zeppelin th slowly flying over and bombing the city this makes all the lights in go out in the club, and Joey and Fanny are advised by the staff to take shelter in the basement. Uh, Fanny says nuts to that and heads up onto the roof. Joey goes with her, and she leans on him as they watch their city get bombed. It's thrilling, isn't it? She sighs. She sighs, and Joey agrees, super stoked that she sh shares his war fetish. What I'll remember the most from that is the way she rolls her R and like it's thrilling. Yeah, she's super into it. And I like this scene too because Zeppelins are fucking awesome. Yeah. Zeppelins are cool. I wish we had invested more in Zeppelins instead of these stupid airplanes we have nowadays. <laughs> Just these big lumbering things slowly gliding out of the city. We get a shot of the bombs falling out of the, the bomb bay doors mm -hmm. too, and it's not as good as the scene in Wings either, so they do all the all the aerial shots they attempt that were in wings. Uh, they did what they could. They did what they could are worse in this movie. Three, and then we have the montage. The three and a half minute war montage. This is where they sing, what's the song? It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to Tipperary. They start singing that song and it's soldiers marching down a road mm -hmm. uh, and there's a crucifix on the side of a road. Yes. Which I don't know if you know. With somebody on the crucifix. Uh, Jesus, I would imagine. <laughs> if there's someone on a crucifix, nine times out of ten, it's him, right? <laughs> uh, and then we get this three and a half minute, which doesn't sound like a long time, but... But it is. It's this montage of soldiers marching and people getting shot. It's overlaid over... The, the marching is happening the whole time. There's multiple things overlaid. Over yes, other. that all cram together and the noise gets very loud and cacophonous. And you see uh, Fanny singing in the club. Mm -hmm. And you see uh, women singing uh, the war songs about how they were sleeping with people. And uh, ammunition and planes and just anything war-related. And it just goes on and on and on. It's so long. And it's so overwhelming. It reminded me of the scene in Willy Wonka where they go into the, the tunnel and the the walls go crazy and it's all all the colors are spinning and yeah. you know are the winds of hell a blowing mm -hmm. it reminded me of that because 
it, by design, it's in, intended to be overwhelming, but it's just so, it goes on for so long that it yeah. becomes comical at a point. And my guess as to why we have this, like, uh, superimposed uh, uh, sequences like this uh, with the women uh, singing about you know, the soldiers and uh, Fanny is the, uh, plus the association with It's Along With Tipper is because the lyrics are It's Along With Tipper, It's Along With a Go, It's Along With Tipper, To the Sweetest Girl I Know. So I assume it's like we had joey and fanny in the scene right before so assuming that joey is long is gone for a long time and he's just dreaming about this sweet girl yep and about every 45 seconds or so it'll flash up another year so we yes. move from 1914 to 15 to 16 to mm -hmm. 17 we end on 18 yes by the time this montage is over and it was during this montage that i turned to you and said this movie is a fever dream <laughs> <laughs> yes because so much stuff, just so much unrelated stuff. We get the war in South Africa. We get the funeral of a queen. We get the fucking Titanic. <laughs> then we get World War One and this three minute long montage. Which I assume it's three, three and a half minutes for uh, to represent the possibly the three and a half years that Joey was gone. Could very well be. Just man, this movie is just all over the place and just stuffed to the gills with anything they could think of. Yeah. Just no idea left on the cutting room floor. What, whatever you can dream up, we will put it in. When we finally fade back in from the overwhelming montage, uh, we see a poster advertising Fanny Bridges in Over the Moon, a musical comedy. Uh, then we go uh, back to her dressing room. It's a different dressing room. It's much bigger and fancier because mm -hmm. she's a much more successful performer at this point. Uh, where Joey is talking about the war and how he has to go back the next day. They only have a few minutes uh, until Fanny has to go on stage. And she asked Joey to stay for the first act at least. But uh, he promised his mother he would be home that night. So he can't. She gives him a picture of her in a locket. And he asks if she really loves him deep down inside. Yes, she says. Enough to marry me, he asks. No, she says. <laughs> and it's during the scene where after she, uh, he asks her if he loves her, if she loves him deeply and she says yes. They're like face to face and it seems like she goes in for a kiss. But then he just presses her cheek against hers. Yes. Which he's, I think is a, yeah, I think it's supposed to illustrate his childlike innocence again. He he just doesn't get it. She she wants to make out and he just wants he just wants a nice hug. Yeah. It's nice to hug the pretty lady. She uh, does, rejects his marriage proposal. It would be too difficult, uh, and his mother wouldn't approve because she's uh, lower class. Uh, Joey pleads with her a little bit, but Fanny says they'll talk about it when he gets back, uh, and tells him to always keep the locket close. Uh, next scene is Joey and uh, his mother Jane at the train station. Uh, they say a quick goodbye, and we get the obligatory relatives kissing moment as Joey plants a big wet one right on his mom's lips. I hate it. I hope this is the last one. Cause... Oh, you know it's not. <laughs> We've got a, at least another decade of, of family smooching. Come on. 
do better. Hollywood. No escape. Yeah. <laughs> and this is another uh, awkward British feelings moment because uh, they're like, all right, well, goodbye, mother. And he compliments her on always uh, being strong in these moments. And uh, her response is, well, I wouldn't want to behave badly. <laughs> they, ha they have such rigid... Uh, like social rules about what um, emotions are appropriate it's yeah. it's so repressed you can just feel them just shoving it down into the deepest parts of their soul Less... he also tells her i don't know i don't remember what he tells her but she says oh funny like robert told me that the, the same exact thing she, years ago she says she wouldn't want to behave badly he replies oh you're not even capable of behaving badly and then um, she oh funny that's what robert said to me when he was leaving for war yeah. and man it's not just that they lock their emotions away they like put it in a safe covered in cement, put chains over the cement, add another layer of cement just to be safe, and then throw the whole thing into an ocean. It is so deeply rep repressed. It's hilarious. Uh, Joey uh, then boards the train, and as it pulls away, uh, Jane slowly wanders towards a newsstand in a daze, wipes a tear away, and goes to light a cigarette while a wounded soldier is carried by on a stretcher. And this is one of those scenes that you were talking about where she just stares down the barrel of the camera. After yeah. the, the train uh, leaves out of the station, you get a lingering shot of her just gripping the fence and staring through the fence as the train leaves, and it's just her just staring right at the camera. Yeah and you can just see the the misery and and worry radiating radiating off of her we then see joey arrive at his destination and after a brief uh, chat with a new recruit he goes to see the railway transport officer who turns out to be his dad robert uh, they make some small talk and robert reveals that there's talk of an armistice uh, robert doesn't recognize it for at first, uh, he's like, can I talk to you, officer? And, oh, I don't think so. I'm quite busy. Oh, you don't even have time to talk to your son? Mm. And they get up, and this is another super stiff, because it's one of those, you can tell that his dad's happy to see him, but he he doesn't know how to emote. Yeah, but so, that, that's, the, that's the scene that I was talking about earlier to me that felt less stiff than others. Really? Than other it yeah. felt just as stiff as all their other interactions to me because at the end of it where they clearly... It's so clear that they like want to hug or say how much they, they care about each other and the most he can manage of... He goes, well, it was... It, it was good of you to look me up. <laughs> that's, that is their equivalent of I love you. I felt, yeah, I felt more comfortable in that interaction than in other scenes. I felt, uh, I don't know, just the, um, seeing them, yeah, they're, it, it's uncomfortable from uh, Robert's part because he, you know, see, now sees his son here in the middle of a war zone and has to be afraid that he knows there's an armistice coming or there's talk of an armistice coming, but like me, I don't know if it's going to come in time for his son to be safe. So. I'm just like contrasting it with how I would be in that situation because we are parents. So yeah. if our son and I were both in a war and if he showed up, I would, I would hug him and be crying and shitting and weeping and snotting be yeah. because he's safe. And here it's just like, a gentle, awkward pat on the arm, and it was good of you to look me up in the phone book. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> it's, man, learn how to feel, please. You're going to explode. 
they'll all be home in a few weeks, he says. Uh, Joey has to leave to catch his next train, and Robert tells him it was good that he looked him up. Uh, then a very brief scene of uh, military bigwigs announcing the armistice, uh, and then we're back in the upstairs room with Ellen arriving to have a talk with Jane about Fanny and Joey getting married. And uh, Ellen is very obviously moving up in the world at this point because she yeah. used to dress in very, you know, working class clothes, like maid outfits and stuff. But now she's got a fancy black, like, feather outfit and she's got one of the f she's... the fancy big poofy things that you put your hand yeah. to. And she's got jewelry and... She's got jewelry, she's got the, like, fur around her shoulders. Still sounds like a witch, though. Still does. Still has a uh, depressingly and spookily small mouth. Yeah. Her her whole head is too small. She, she, she scares me. I don't like it. <laughs> Fanny doesn't know that Ellen knows about their relationship uh, because Ellen found out about the relationship by just finding a letter that Joey had written laying around the house. Yeah. I have it right here with me, she says, and she offers to show it to Jane. But Jane is, like, having none of this. She's like, yeah. I'm not interested in meddling in my kids' lives and why does this even matter? And she offers her the letter and she's like, no, I don't, I, no, I, I don't, don't care. And then Ellen gets offended because she th thinks that, oh, you're too high society. You don't want my daughter, um, your son to marry my daughter because we're from the lower class. And Jane does, Jane just doesn't care. She's just, why are you being a busybody and bothering me with this? So the only thing she has is like, is... Fanny in trouble. Which is... Which is... Code, which is the same for... Is she pregnant? Yeah, is code for pregnant. But she's not. Ellen assures her she's not. I don't know why. And I... I kind of like that phrase. The, you know, is she in trouble? And at the same time, I don't... Is exist. she in a family way? Yeah. Do they know each other? Mm, biblically? <laughs> yeah. Just say sex. Just say sex. You won't die. Uh, she does very, like a little curtly like dismiss Ellen like I'm done talking to this go away yeah uh, but Ellen uh, refuses to be dismissed and goes on about how successful Fanny is now and how everything is changing and some people are moving up in the world uh, while others go down mm. I said goodbye Ellen <laughs> says Jane <laughs> she just does not give a shit and uh, yeah I sympathize with Jane a lot in this scene <laughs> but she just keeps dismissing her and Ellen refuses to go <laughs> And she does say it exactly like how I said, I said goodbye. <laughs> Just go away. Uh, before Ellen can leave, though, a maid enters with a message for Jane. Uh, Jane reads it and then tells Ellen that she doesn't need to worry about Fan Fanny and Joey anymore because Joey is dead. And then she falls onto the floor in a very dramatic yeah. fashion. Because this movie just cannot pass up an opportunity for tragedy. I was very, like, reminiscent, uh, you know, screaming apart. Uh, I was reminiscent of the that scene at the beginning of yeah. the movie, the, when they see the... The woman uh, faints. Yeah, yeah she, she goes, faints. she just says it very dramatically. She goes, because Joey is dead. And then she collapses onto the floor. And it, we've already said this, but it's just silly. I know yeah. they're trying to be serious and it just comes off as silly. And... You're just so numb to it at this point because everything that possibly could have gone wrong has gone wrong. And just every tragedy that could occur has occurred that you're... I was not surprised at all when this happened. Like, oh, of course he's dead. Like, the movie's going to pass up on an opportunity to, to make something sad happen. I 
almost expected both the husband yes. and Joey. The to be only dead. surprise is that they're not both dead. And of yeah. of course it has to be in like the final weeks of the war as the armistice has already been declared just just to drive the knife in and twist it. You, yeah. Maximum tragedy. Uh, we then move on to an extended scene of crowds uh, caught up in the frenzy of post-war celebration and uh, eventually see Jane stumbling through the crowd like a zombie. She's just like staring at the ground and stumbling and bumping into people who are cheering. And it's, I said while we were watching, it's like, well, why'd she even go out? You know, like, I, I guess you could, you know, oh, she's in a stupor. She doesn't even know what she's doing. But like, if you're in that, just, 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 don't, just don't go. I don't know. I I could see the when the war was declared and Joey said, "Oh, let's go out in the in the street and celebrate," and she wasn't in the mood for it. I feel like this is not explicitly said or anything, but I feel like this is a a moment of oh, maybe I should have gone in the street and celebrated with him when he was alive, and that's her way of celebrating uh, the end of the war. Yeah, she almost works herself up into a freakout because yeah. she has, like, a noisemaker, yeah. and she stumbles like a zombie for a bit, and then she stops while she's staring at the ground, and then she almost goes into hysterics where she starts swinging the noisemaker around a lot and, like, manically laughing, but then it just dies down and she just starts staring at the ground again like a zombie. Yeah. Clearly, Clearly not in a good state. Yeah, torn apart by all the the tragedy and the uh, the unstoppable march of history. Uh, horses again, and then a scene of blind men making baskets. You remember this? <laughs> I, yeah, that was another. What is this? Yeah, doing why? Here? What What was the point of the scene? Because it's just first you see a shot of a man reading Braille, yeah. and then it zooms out, and it's a room full of I guess injured war veterans, though it doesn't explicitly say that, and they're all. They're blind and they're like weaving baskets together because you can do that with your hands. Do you know what this reminded me of? What? The uh, scene in uh, the French Dispatch in the jail when um, the prisoner goes into the the arts class. It's a very similar type of scene because it's just, it's all concrete. Just like that room was in yes. the prison, and uh, they're all they're kind of uh, displayed in a, in uh, a semicircle in front of the camera, which is exactly how it was in the French Dispatch too. Yep, uh, uh, that scene fades into a shot of uh, the standard uh, war graveyard filled with the basic white crosses, like to the horizon. Mm-hmm. Uh, next, it's a montage of men giving speeches about various things like disarmament and communism. And, uh, how God is, we're like too old as a, as a country to believe in God anymore, which then fades into a sermon being put on, on by a preacher to an audience of only like five people that the church is like empty, but he's still trying to, you know, uh, fight the good fight. Uh. Uh, and that ends with the screen being filled with uh, numerous headlines. And I wrote every single one of these headlines down. Are Let's you, hear them. Are you ready? Let's hear them. Here we go. All right. No more home life. More political scandals. Sensational fall in birth rate. Sex murder dramas. The Great War again? Divorce. 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 <laughs> World suicide wave, a national menace, renewed danger of war, husband and wife murder, the age of unfaith, 
and my personal favorite, Vice Orgies Increasing. Because why not? <laughs> Sign me up. Here's my wallet. Don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> yep. And they all they all shoot across the screen and like yeah. overlap each other in crazy rapid succession. This it just it goes nuts. I love it. You really have to to the point where you really have to like pause it to see because I the last one you said the vice orges increasing. I had seen the vice and orges uh, separately, but I hadn't seen the whole title, the the whole headline. Together. Yeah, they go by way too quickly for you to read them all. I had yeah. to to slow it down to get all of them. A divorce, divorce, divorce is another personal favorite. <laughs> oh, uh, it's just... excuse me, should I read this? Uh, anything to this? No, it's just this. This movie's ham-fisted attempts at being serious, trying so hard to be artsy and just being fartsy. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's it's serious. Vice orgies are increasing. <laughs> Uh, then we're in a swanky club where I imagine some of those vice orgies would happen. It's like uh, marble floor. And probably. There's, it's all young people in very fancy clothing. Kind of, They mm -hmm. seem like they're drunk or intoxicated on something. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, we see Fanny on stage singing. She's in a black dress this time. She's in a black, very tight leather dress. With uh, a feather collar, with big feathers mm -hmm. that like go down almost to her midriff. Yeah. All the way around. And she's singing about uh, how uh, bad the world is and how everyone's losing faith. And uh, if there's a God above us, shouldn't he be grinning? And mm -hmm. then uh, the chorus is, In this strange illusion, chaos and confusion, people seem to lose their way. What is there to strive for or to keep alive for? Call it a day. Mm -hmm. And this almost... You've probably never heard this, but this almost has the melody of the Adams Family uh, opening intro. Oh. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. And it's the same melody uh, for the lyrics. Uh, Chaos and confusion in the strange illusion. It's the same melody as the Adams Family. Which is weird because the rest of the song is, is very dark and, and uh, has a, a very like sad tune. Yep. But this was long before the Adams Family was on TV, so maybe they stole it from this. Who can say? Then we see Margaret and Jane in the upstairs room. Uh, they're both uh, gray-haired at this point. Yeah. Very aged. And Margaret uh, is talking about the new doctor she's boning and telling Jane that she should find a, a doctor to bone to. This is why I love Margaret. She's like, oh, this, this man is marvelous. He's curing all my ailments. And... Yeah, she's basically trying to imply that Jane should have an affair just to spice things up and, you know, find herself <laughs> a, a nice hot young doctor. And yeah. You've got to, to liven, up li liven up life somehow. Uh, but Jane says she's fine just going to the zoo. <laughs> and at a point she, uh, she asks her, uh, well, what ailments are there? And there's this kind of smart look, oh, well, the ailment is not having a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Margaret leaves for a New Year's Eve party because we've come for a full circle and we'll, we're back at New Year's Eve now. Back at New Year's Eve. Just like the beginning of the film. Uh, and Jane sits down on the couch next to Robert. Robert says he still believes in the future and Jane says that she does too, but in a different way. Uh, he says their life together has been a wonderful adventure and Jane agrees. Sometimes happy, sometimes sad, 
but never dull or sordid. It's one minute till midnight, and Robert opens the champagne and makes a toast to Jane, who returns the compliment and toasts to him. They drink to their sons, who became part of the pattern of history, and to their hearts that died with them. Finally, they drink to England, that it might find peace again. And then we get a montage of the, the blind people uh, weaving baskets, uh, the guys giving speeches, the graveyards, uh, more cacophonous noise. And we see get uh, Fanny singing in there a little mm -hmm. bit. Uh, then it fades out, and they head out onto the balcony to hear the crowd below singing the All Acquaintance Be Forgot song again. Mm -hmm. It's like the third time they sing it in the, the movie. And the final shot of the film is the dome of a church with the crucifix on top of the, uh, the dome, like, shining artificially bright. I think it's St. Saint, uh, Saint Paul in, uh, in London. Sure. Uh, and ghostly horses slowly walking past in the sky while God save the queen plays and we slowly fade to black. The end. Well, do you remember? We also know that it's going to be 1933. Yes, this is this is New Year's 1933, and they're at, they're I saying. Saw the, I saw the date, and I was like, oh, just Lord, no, because 1933 is when Hitler came to power. Yes, they're drinking to uh, peace and prosperity in the future, and we here in 2023 are shaking our heads and saying, uh, not even close. <laughs> yeah, because they've already, I, I, as soon as I saw the date, 1930, I was like, good Lord, no. Like, they've already been through so much. Yeah, they're wishing for prosperity and peace and all that, and then within the next, you know, six years, you know, they're going to go through it again. Yep, all over again. The world says peace, and uh, Germany shakes its head and says, uh, no, intermission. <laughs> <sighs> that the last scene, I, I like the last scene a lot. The scene between Robert and Jane. Yeah, because it's like I said, their marriage is so solid throughout the whole thing, and they're just having a very frank and open conversation. And you can tell that they, uh, they generally really love and care for each other, and they've been each other's support through their entire lives. Yeah, and... that's a good like full circle. Also from the the first scene of the movie where they're discussing exactly that, like their how good their marriage has been so far, and that they're, uh, you see them at the end and they're still standing together. Yeah, they, they have a little witty banter in the, in the opening scene where he's like, oh, she said something something to the effect about how he's going to like run off or find another woman or something. Mm. Or, and and he's like, oh, well, it's too late for you to, to find someone else now. And then they both you know chuckle and kiss. And, yeah. and then in this scene, he talks about how all all the the tragedy they've been through in their lives and how a lot of it uh happened in this very room that they're sitting in now and mm -hmm. they they feel like an old couple yeah like a genuine old couple that have been through the ringer together they feel like yeah like two people who have grown old but also just grown together yeah yeah they they support each other and it's it's nice and also this might be the bleakest ending we've ever gotten because yeah. there's just this this overwhelming sadness draped over the whole ending scene because empty nest and they survived and their kids didn't and yeah. you can tell that robert he feels it but he can still keep on go on living but jane is just absolutely destroyed 
she's yeah she's been destroyed like multiple times throughout this movie yeah she's just been through the ringer and you can see it on her face and her demeanor and she's she's just resigned she's just tired and resigned you can hear it when she's talking to margaret and margaret's you know oh you should get a doctor <laughs> and <laughs> margaret's still full of life and you know enjoying boning hot young yeah. men and and jane's just like well i go to the zoo every week <laughs> That's nice. Which, yeah, is not at all where I thought this movie would go. Because, so, we never read anything about the movies. We never, uh, nope. before we, we, before we watch them. We, we go in blind. Them, yeah, completely blind. No expectations. But I, when I was looking for the poster of the movies, yeah, before we watched it, all I could, I, all I could read was like, oh, you know, mother, her, a mother and her two sons. My expectation for this movie was going to be that her husband was going to go to war and then she was going to have to, he was going to die in the war and she would have to raise uh, the boys on her own, probably become like destitute or something like that and just have to fight through life. Yeah, like a, a fall from grace where yeah. they have the servants in the beginning and then... You Fanny becomes a dancer, and the servants yeah. become the the upper crust, and the upper crust become the servants. Yeah. Uh, an old switcheroo. Yeah. But no, not at all. Which is still, you know, very much as much suffering as I expected, but not quite the story. I yeah, expected. they. It's just it's constant and never ending, and like I said, you just get numb to it after a point because it's just mm -hmm. like, oh, of course the bad thing happened. That's mm -hmm. that's this movie's bread and butter. But that's and, I, I'm doing. You know, some research about the the movie also. That's very much what the movie was uh, praised for uh, at the time. Was like how much, how true to life it was, and how and depicting families uh, um, from that time who, like you said, went through the ringer and and had to live through all those um, all those tragedies, uh, but also just her performance overall is what the movie was praised for because uh she, she was people were saying uh, uh that she she's the one she's the person who like really carried uh, this movie she certainly gets the most screen time yeah and yeah. it yeah it's mostly about how everything affects her and yeah, yeah the 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 trauma of all these losses and i mean as hammy as, as her acting was and, and how much uh, unintentional enjoyment I got out of this movie laughing at it when it's trying to be serious and just coming off as goofy and ham-fisted, that last scene is a, a real punch in the gut. I cannot imagine the, the nightmare of losing a child, let alone two of them, and then you can just feel it. Yeah. The the empty nest is just palpable in that last scene. and yeah. And... The loss, it's, it, it weighs so heavily on her, and it's thick, a, a thick, crushing sorrow. There's just no hope of the future, because they're way too old to have any more children, so, yeah. like, this is it. It's... Like, th this is the way her life went, this is how yeah. it turned out, and it was just tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. That's a, yeah tragic but also i feel like it's a movie about resilience yeah 
fulfilling the second requirement for winning Best Picture. You have to have a, a big crowd scenes, and it has to end in tragedy. We do not do happy endings here. Yeah. Not so far. Oh, this movie. Not this so far. This movie almost felt like a culmination of all the movies we've watched so far, because it feels like it has elements from everything we've watched. It has the war. It it's has got the war music. from Wings. It's got plane scenes it's from got Wings. Horses. Horses. It's got the time skips. Time skips from mm-hmm. Cimarron. It's got the the picture of a pretty girl in a locket as a good luck charm mm-hmm. from Wings. Uh, it's got plenty of theater performances like Broadway Melody did. Yeah. It's got little like scenes from everybody's life, like uh, Grand Hotel. Yeah, War is Hell from All Quiet on the the Western Front. It's like they put every movie we've watched into this point and into a blender, set it to puree, and out comes Cavalcade. Yeah. It's and just stuffed, stuffed, crammed with so many bizarre. Why did they do that? Things like the carving of people's famous people's faces in sand, and the little girl screaming at the top of her lungs that continues on to into the next scene, and or the cavalcade itself. Yes, like, the why? the recurring ghost horses. Why? I it's supposed to be a metaphor for the uh the unstoppable tide of history. I think. Yeah, but for the it's, passing of time. And it's I just another part. bizarre thing in in ocean. Of, of bizarre things and it's just they threw everything at the wall for this movie a funeral for the queen uh two different wars uh titanic uh the multiple weird jaunty tunes that three and a half minute montage that starts with a, a cheerful song and goes on for way too long. The the odd shot of the guys weaving baskets for no reason. It's not five minutes goes by in this movie where something happens that does makes you shake your head and just go, what, 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 why, what, what is happening? In our personal lives, I've often described things as fever dreams, but this more than anything else I've described using those words is a fever dream of a movie. It is so bizarre in so many different ways. And yet still like one of the, to, at least to me, one of the most entertaining movies oh, that hands, we've watched. Hands down <laughs> entertaining because it's just every... You're just being constantly assaulted with this, like, what is happening? What is that? Fe- Theodore Roosevelt's face insane? Okay. Uh, somebody's flying over the English Channel? All right. The the Queen's casket? Okay. Is somebody getting run over by a carriage? The Titanic? It's a relentless assault. Uh, yes, yeah, super entertaining. Uh, not at all in the way I think they intended it to be entertaining. Probably not. But, yeah, this movie was was nuts <laughs> super entertaining i yeah laughed a lot unintentional laughter but yeah i enjoyed it i enjoyed it a lot i cannot in good conscience conscience say that this is the best movie we've watched but it is absolutely the most entertaining which is why i'm putting it at number two Okay, alright, we're I, there. I, yes, I laughed and 
felt more and was baffled and entertained much more than I was for Grand Hotel, but I, God damn it, in Grand Hotel, there was competence. Okay. And this movie is not entertaining because it's competent. It is entertaining for the exact opposite because these people thought that they were being artsy and serious, whereas most of the time they are being absolutely batshit, bonkers, banana crazy. So your personal rating... Number two. So you have Grand Hotel number one. I can't, I cannot, I can't put something I enjoyed ironically above something that I enjoyed legitimately in the way it was intended to be enjoyed. So walk us through your rating. So you have number one, Grand Hotel. Grand Hotel, number two is Cavalcade. I will probably remember Cavalcade much longer than I remember Grand Hotel, especially the Titanic scene. Oh, God, the Titanic <laughs> scene. It's almost three days after we've watched that movie, and I'm still laughing about it. I will probably, for a good month from now, be laughing about the fact that they were on the Titanic. Yeah. And the movie thought that that was some big dramatic reveal. <laughs> then number three... Uh, number three for you? No, number three. For oh, you number th- number three on my list uh, is All Quiet on... No, it'll be Wings now. Mm-hmm. So number one, Grand Hotel. Two is Cavalcade. Three is Wings. Four is All Quiet on the Western Front. Uh, then we drop down to 90 for Broadway Melody and 91 for Cimarron. Okay. It will shock absolutely no one. I had to redo my rating. Change of heart. Change, change of, of heart, heart. Change of heart alert. <laughs> Restructuring the list. Yes. Redo. Redo. I realized after our last podcast for um, uh, for Grand Hotel that I had a lot more positive comments about Grand Hotel than I did about Cimarron. So here goes. My current rating is number one, still Wings. Number two, All Quiet on the Western Front. I'm going to put Cavalcade at number three. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, really enjoyed this movie. I've already forgotten most of All Quiet on the Western Front, if I'm being honest. <laughs> and just, yeah, for sheer entertainment value. Yeah. Number four is Broadway Melody. Number five, Grand Hotel. And then number six, Cimarron for me. Cimarron, back where it belongs, at the very yeah, bottom of the list. back where it belongs. Where it shall stay. I, I definitely, you know, thinking about, uh, back about our conversations about the uh, the podcast, I definitely had more uh, positive comments about Grand Hotel. Yeah. Yep. What was this movie about? History? Which one? Cavalcade. Yes. Yeah, I think about the effects of history. The, uh, the living, effect of, of horror. Living in a troubled time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's how, you know, that's how it's described. Everybody is like looking at the the effects, looking at what... I read on one of, in one of the articles that, uh, that I read, it, it was about the uh, authentic uh, depiction of British life. <laughs> At the beginning of the 20th century. I'm not sure that I would talk why, about really British life specifically. Why is an American film academy awarding uh, accurate depictions of British life? Well, yeah, it, it was such a bleak movie. I think it's... Be- My guess is that it's because it came out in the height of Great Depression times. And so... Probably. 
generally just the populace and everyone was not very hopeful about anything that was going on and so uh, a movie that plays into that bleak outlook of life the headlines about <laughs> no family life and how people are losing faith in institutions and everything's becoming godless and divorce 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 <laughs> yeah there there's no glimmer of hope at the end of this they're old None and whatsoever. they're old and tired and worn out their children are dead uh, they don't know it, but they're on uh, on the eve of another world war happening, yeah. and it's it's just it's all bad. Yeah. It's just all bad, and yeah, which is when you know when we're talking about oh 1933, yeah, it's even not worse, but like we know for yeah. us as modern the... audience that 1933 is like the beginning of the of another like downfall in in Europe but like obviously they didn't know yet yeah the movie does not even know how bleak yeah. it is cuz they're yeah. drinking to future peace yeah. on on the uh the cusp of Hitler's rise to power yeah i was like uh, yeah embrace yourselves silver lining they have no more children to lose <laughs> <laughs> uh and yeah and then the ghost horses at the end i i can't get over because this movie is just so proud of itself. You can almost feel it like puffing out its chest when it does these things about how uh, artsy and uh, pretentious it's trying to be. Mm -hmm. And it is just so clumsy and goofy. And yeah, they're trying so hard, but <laughs> it's just not working at all. Ah. <sighs> Next week will be It Happened One Night. It Happened One Night. 1934. I... <laughs> With the first actor that uh, we will probably recognize, Clark Gable. Yeah, Clark Gable. I have, uh, I own a, bi a biography of him. Haven't read it yet, but sitting on a shelf. Yeah. I know that guy, King of Hollywood. Do you feel bad when About you what? when you enjoy movies or, or books or anything you enjoy it uh in a way that wasn't intended like i am i am laughing at this movie when it is trying to take itself seriously and i cannot imagine that my reaction to this film is the reaction that the people who made this movie would want to get out of the audience and that does make me feel bad sometimes that well no, I don't think that I feel bad for that because exactly for the reason that you just mentioned is like we're different people. Uh, we're different from the people who experienced it and who got to see it when it first came out. We're different from uh, we have had different experiences from the people who lived at that time. Yeah. So I don't. I feel like it's hard not to watch. A piece of art especially like a, a movie or something like that and not have a uh, not see it from your from your own times point of view yeah and standards for everything change yeah. and so it's really hard to make any piece of art that is timeless and will not eventually just come off as goofy and archaic yeah 
it, it's hard. Yeah. Hard to make things that stand the test of time. I especially don't feel bad with this movie because I, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people out there who might watch it and who are like, well, this, this isn't a great movie. But I still, like, I very much appreciated that movie. And, uh, and uh, I think it's a great movie. Yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. not in the way they thought it was a great movie. Yeah. Entertaining as hell. I would. This might be the first one that I would recommend people actually watch. Just for the sheer insanity of it. I think. Although so. we have already spoiled the the best twist. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, if I had to recommend uh, movies from the ones that we watched so far, I think I would uh, definitely recommend uh, Wings and uh, Cavalcade. Yeah, I'd recommend Cavalcade and Grand Hotel. Although I could, I could understand that uh, Grand Hotel is probably not everyone's cup of tea, mm. and I'm just a, a weirdo pervert who likes that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anything else? Um, I don't know. I think that's all I have to say about the about this one. And our next movie again. Uh, it happened one night from 1934. It happened one night. With Clark Gable and uh, Claudette Colbert. Mm. All right. Until then, thanks everybody for listening. Thank you. We'll see you next week. See you next week. They were on the fucking Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, piss off movie. Okay, that's it, that's it, that's it.